The resurrection turns our doubt into faith. It turns our despair into hope. It turns our dread, turns our fear into absolute peace. And it turns death into new life. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pilgrim Benham. I'm the lead pastor of Shoreline Church. And today on the podcast, we have a special message from our Easter service this past weekend. We want to encourage you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. Enjoy this very special Easter message. Awesome. Well, this morning, I want us to uh, look at John chapter 20. And what I want to start with this morning is a question. What is the centerpiece of Christianity? What is the center stage of the Christian faith? If you're here today and you are wondering, what does it mean to be a Christian? It really depends where you look. So if we were to go to television and flip through the channels and we come across maybe an old show called The Simpsons, we would think that being a Christian means that you're just a good person, you're a little nerdy, maybe you wear these sweaters and you have clean white teeth like on the show um, uh, Homer's neighbor, Ned Flanders. Maybe that's what you think a Christian is. Or if you've watched The Office, anybody admit that they've watched The Office here? Okay, yeah, uh, guilty then you might think that a Christian is uptight and obnoxious and really repulsive like Angela Martin, who eventually becomes Angela Schrute. Sorry to give that spoiler alert if you haven't seen The Office. Others would say, no, Christians, they eat Christian chicken at Chick-fil-A. That's what a Christian is. A Christian goes there. And I would say, I don't always crave Chick-fil-A, but when I do, it's always on Sunday. Does that happen to you as well? <laughs> Hate that. Others would say, no, 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 no. A Christian means you have to watch Fox News and vote Republican. But no, the centerpiece of Christianity has nothing to do with being good. It has nothing to do with Chick-fil-A. And it has nothing to do with voting for Donald Trump. The centerpiece of Christianity is an empty tomb. It's a risen Savior. The message of Easter is simply this, guys. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. The grave has been defeated. Sin has been conquered. The wrath of God is satisfied. The guilty are actually pardoned, and the penitent, you and I, go free. And death has been swallowed up in one powerful word. It's the word victory. And so today, millions, if not billions, of people around the world are in gatherings like we are here today to come together and celebrate and sing about and study and rejoice in the finished work of Christ at Calvary, but even better than that, in his glorious uh, rising from the dead. Uh, and so today's what we call Resurrection Sunday. Now, as a church, we actually celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. We celebrate it on what's called the Lord's Day Sunday. So this isn't really anything unique. If you're here today and this is your first Sunday, this is not something that we're only reserving for Easter. Like we only talk about the resurrection on Easter. We, we actually talk about it every week. And there's moments in the service here at Shoreline where people just like you did a minute ago, just applause, just in, in awe of what Christ accomplished for us. Um, but I just think, you know, it doesn't get any better than the resurrection story. It doesn't get any better than that. We have nothing better to say because that is, uh, that is the amazing news. So today we're going to be looking at John chapter 20. And um, before we do that, at, at Easter, we want to do what Paul told Timothy. So look on the screen with me. Paul says 
to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. We're going to do that today. We're going to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. You're here this morning at our 11 o'clock service. We had many at our 930 service. You might be watching this live right now on Facebook, and we welcome you and are glad you're here and tuning in. But today we're going to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Uh, So let's pray for our time together in the scriptures. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, thank you that you have conquered sin and death and that you rose victorious, that there's an empty tomb. We thank you that death has been swallowed up in victory. And Lord, now we can rejoice, not mourn, but Lord, we can walk in newness of life. So we commit this time to you and pray that you'd speak and encourage us through the teaching of scripture. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Imagine what it would have been like walking to the tomb that Easter Sunday morning. You have Mary Magdalene, you have uh, some of the other women on their way to finish the job, so to speak, that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had begun uh, right before sunset on Friday evening. They had waited through the Passover and kind of the Sabbath rest. And so early that morning, here's the ladies on their way approaching the tomb, filled with confusion, filled with sorrow. All of their hopes, all of their dreams, all of the the realities of a Messiah to save them were placed upon Jesus, and yet he was placed upon a cross. And, And when Jesus died, when he breathed his last, all of their hopes were crushed in that single moment. You think about the disciples and and everything that they had heard and and witnessed uh, was now crucified and laid in a tomb. And and when Jesus died, all of their desires for him as their teacher, as their Messiah, were laid to rest. Just picture what that would have been like walking up to that tomb that Easter morning with Peter, the fearless leader, so they thought, who had denied Jesus three times, with Judas, the 12th disciple, who had committed suicide. And just all of this crazy situation that happened as the thousands and thousands of lamb sacrifices continued that Passover feast on Saturday. Just picture what that would have been like. like. We open chapter 20 uh, with four heavy scenarios. And this is kind of our template for our time this morning. Four different kind of attitudes that are going into chapter 20. We're going to see how the resurrection changes these four things. We're going to see death. We're going to see despair. We're going to see dread. And we're going to see doubt. And how a risen Savior changes all of those things. So that's kind of our, uh, our template today. Let's look at verse 1 and let's look at this idea of death. Look at verse 1 with me in chapter 20. It says, Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out, verse 3, with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Now, you noticed as I was just reading that, it mentioned a couple times, the other disciple, the other disciple. That's John the gospel writer of this account. So he's actually writing about himself. I'm the other disciple, okay? And and notice in verse two, he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, okay? That's, he's referring to himself. Now, as a runner, I really like verse four. 
Uh, I, some of you guys know I have kind of a vice with, with donut eating, and I love eating donuts. And so now I'm running a lot more. Uh, I don't know if you could tell, um, but I'm running more. Um, imagine what I'd look like if I didn't run. Um, so um, running more, that allows me to eat donuts. So I like verse 4 because I can relate to this. Look at verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, we know Peter was a little bit older than John. John's a younger man. And so can you just picture in your mind's eye like I can? They're, they're both hearing the news that someone's taken Jesus' body. And so what? And so they begin to run. Can you see Peter, the older man, kind of running next to the younger John? And I'm going to show him what's going on. So he'll run a little bit faster. Well, then John, he's not even winded yet, and he sprints at the end, and then Peter's lagging behind. Can you guys kind of see that? Uh, I love that John includes verse 4 in the canon of Scripture for all of eternity. He's saying, hey, guess what? I'm a faster runner than Peter. I, I love that. I love that. These guys are so competitive when you look through John's gospel. Like, like John's like, you know, Peter is one of the main disciples. He's one of the main guys. But um, who's the one that Jesus loved? Who was that? Who's, oh, that's me. That's right. Remember all of the gospel writers in the Garden of Gethsemane? They all say that someone, they don't mention who, but they say someone cut off Malchus, the high priest's servant's ear. Well, then John comes along. He's like, hey, guys, that was Peter. By the way, I don't know if you knew that. That was Peter. <laughs> it's been a few years since the Gospels were written, and I just want to clear, clear that up, let everyone know. And so look at verse 5. It says, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. So whatever kept John from going in did not stop Peter. You got to love Peter, man. He's just always impulsive. Like John kind of stops. Maybe it's reverence. Maybe it's confusion, awe. Well, Peter kind of bumbles past him and goes right in. You got to love him. He's always jumping out of boats and cutting ears off and saying things he shouldn't say. You got to love Peter. Some of us are like Peter, right? Don't admit it, but some of us are like him. So the news that Jesus's body was taken was enough to cause them to sprint to the tomb. But then they get there and they're winded. They're out of breath. They're trying to catch their heart rate. And this moment brings great confusion. What's going on here? Well, look at verse, how verse 6 continues. It says, He, John, saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, he points that out again. He's like, just so, in case you missed it earlier, I'm the one who reached the tomb first. He also went in, and I love this, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John comes to the tomb, and they both eventually go in, and they see the linen cloth lying there with, remember last week, if you were here, 75 to 100 pounds of ointment, perfume, and powder that was used not to mummify, not to embalm, but to, to kind of um, stave off the smell of death. They wrapped Jesus' body and the linen cloths would have hardened to um, Jesus' wounds. They would have been sticking to his wounds. The, the ointment would have dried. The, the powder would have been caked with the perfume and would have, would have crusted and dried. This would have been almost like a cocoon-shaped linen cloth all around the body of Jesus. And so what's going on here? How are they folded up and laying there orderly? Like grave robbers wouldn't take the time to do that. They'd just take his body and run. Jesus would have no way to kind of unwrap himself as he's laying in this position. It's not like he'd begin to unravel. 
So no one else had been there to remove specifically the headcloth and to lay it folded orderly and carefully. So the only explanation is that Jesus' body would have reanimated and that someone else took off uh, the linen cloths and it would not have been human hands. So what was happening? What was happening? In the greatest moment of triumph that the world had ever known, death had been defeated by life. The disciples didn't understand this yet. But we get a hint in verse 8 that John, as he's writing this, says, like, I kind of knew in that moment, I believed that he had risen from the dead. Before he saw Jesus, before he heard Jesus, before he handled Jesus, John said, I saw the evidence and I believed. I saw the resurrection evidence and I believed. The disciples show up at a tomb with the reality of death in their hearts, but they leave that day with the power of the resurrection forever changing their lives. And that's my prayer for some of you this morning. See, the stats are in. They did research recently, and they found out that 10 out of every 10 people die. I don't know if you knew that stat. 10 out of every 10 will die. One day, the curtain of your earthly life will draw to an end. And your eyes, literally, that are blinking during the service, you haven't even been aware of it, will one day close for the last time in death. And the scripture says, and then the judgment. You see, Jesus came to take your place. He died the death that you deserve. He, he incurred the wrath of God and the judgment of God in your place so that you might receive the life that he deserved. Paul told the Romans in Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then he says this to Christians, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you're not a believer, then you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. But see, that resurrection life that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you here this morning if spiritually you would repent and believe. Verse 10 says that the disciples didn't know what to do, so they just went to their homes, confused and perplexed, no doubt. And we'll see them again in a moment, but let's look at Mary Magdalene for a minute, our second idea, and despair. Look at verse 11. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. You can see Peter and John saw all this and then they left. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And, a, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away the Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same question that he, the angels had asked. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now, stay with me. We know from other gospel accounts that there's other women here with her. But see, John notices that she's the one that alerts the disciples originally, so that's why he singles her out and mentions her. This is Mary Magdalene, and Mary Magdalene was forever changed by Jesus. We learned from Mark 16 and Luke 8 that she had been delivered by Jesus from seven demons. Not one, seven demons. She had a sordid past. She had a checkered past. She had a lifestyle that was filled with 
uh, a lot of craziness. But all of that forever changed when she met Jesus. And she ended up becoming one of Jesus' greatest followers. We hear all about Peter, James, and John and the Twelve, but often we overlook Mary. Mary uh, had just witnessed the execution of her Messiah, her teacher, at the hands of Rome. And while the Jews walked by and wagged their heads and mocked him, she was praying for him and she was weeping for him. Think about it. Mary was one of the last to leave the cross and she was one of, if not the first, male or female followers to be back at the grave, back at the tomb. Her life had been completely surrendered and caught up in following Jesus. And now in her tears, now in her grief, coming to continue the burial process that had begun hastily by the two guys, Joseph and Nicodemus, because the, the Sabbath had approached and sunset was there, they had to stop the work and just finish it. And then she's coming now to what she thinks is a sealed tomb to continue the work. And, and yet the, the tomb is open, the stones rolled away, and she peeks in, and then this like final insult just pushes her over the edge. Someone has come and they've violated the grave. They've taken the body of my teacher, my rabbi. Uh, just overcome with despair, overcome with grief, begins to weep. And, and then she sees these angels and they say, well, why are you weeping? And she doesn't know what's happening. And, and then he, she sees Jesus, hears Jesus. She doesn't know it's Jesus. She thinks it's the gardener. Maybe the gardener has some inside information. But look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, one word, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Did you guys see this? In one word, Jesus turns her despair into hope. In one word. And I love that Jesus, all he does is just call her by name. Like, was it the tone of his voice? Was it the, the way that he spoke her name? Whatever it was, it was intimate, it was personal, and he was speaking her name, and she knew immediately that it was the Lord. This was not the gardener. This was her teacher. I, I love this, guys. I love this, because Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verse 3. He said, I call my sheep by name, and my sheep know my voice. They hear my voice. Isn't that awesome? He was doing that here with Mary. He knew her by name, and he was calling her by name, and she recognized his voice. In the middle of her discouragement and her disorientation, seeking an answer to the plight that she was experiencing, Jesus comes and, in a word, speaks a true hope to her. You guys see, the resurrection takes our despair and turns it into amazing hope. It takes despair and transforms it into hope. And I believe many people are living lives today that are empty. They're living lives that are filled with sorrow, filled with a lack of purpose. A lot of us are just aimlessly living lives as if we're professional mourners. Like we're like Mary, we're just going to the tomb to mourn. And we're walking around with the smell of death. We don't understand what life is really about. We just exist. It could be that we've been living our lives, climbing a ladder, only to realize the entire time it's been leaning alongside the wrong foundation, the wrong building. Some of you may have been building your life thinking, this is what life is, and then you find the end result of it, and you go, this isn't life, this is death, this is despair. There's gotta be more. There's gotta be more. There's, there's questions you have, and those questions need real answers. And perhaps like today, like Mary, you're kind of peeking in. You're here today, and this is not normal for you to be at a church service. And we're glad you're here, but you're here and you're like, I'm kind of like Mary. I'm like peeking in to kind of see what's going on here. See what this is all about. 
And I just want to know if, if there's an answer to the theological questions that I have. And you see, Jesus doesn't come with a big theological paragraph. He's standing behind you and he's just calling out your name. He, he knows you. He created you. He knit you together fearfully and wonderfully in your mother's womb. He knows you by name. And Jesus knew Mary intimately. Where demons took advantage of her, Jesus delivered her. Where other voices filled her head, and many of us know what that's like. There's voices in our head that are constant. Only one voice cut through the noise. It only took a word. It only took a mere sentence, the name Mary. I love what Charles Spurgeon said on the screen. He said, in the Garden of Eden, immediately after the fall, the sentence of sorrow and of sorrow multiplied fell upon the woman. In the garden where Christ had been buried, after his resurrection, the news of comfort comfort rich and divine came to a woman through the woman's promised seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. If the sentence must fall heavily upon the woman, so must the comfort come most sweetly to her. Listen, that comfort, that hope that was available to Mary is available to you this morning if you would repent and believe. Now look what Jesus goes on to say in verse 17. He says, do not cling to me, more literally stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene, verse 18, went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, it is only fitting that the gospel records a woman being the first eyewitness to the resurrection. Here's why. If you and I were to fabricate this story, we were to make it up, this would not hold up in a court of law. Why? Because they would only submit men as witnesses to an event. So the fact that there's a woman who is the main testimonial, who's the first eyewitness, can only mean one thing. That's exactly what happened. And I love that, listen, the gospel obliterates the sexism and the segregation that we come up intellectually and culturally with. The gospel obliterates that. Uh, the Bible says in, in Galatians that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Salvation has leveled that. And so when we look at, 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 at race, when we look at um, gender, what we see ultimately is that the gospel's posture, listen, is impartiality, not equality. It's impartiality. We're not, we're not even to worry about that. And so I love that, that she shares this news with the disciples. And, and God in his providence allows it to be a woman to be the first one to declare the good news. I love that. Jesus takes Mary's despair and he turns it around into resurrection hope. And listen, hope is something that spreads. I mean, when you get good news, don't you want to tell somebody? When I get good news, I just, I want everyone to know. Like, hey, there's a new trailer for this new movie coming out. Everyone's got to know about this. Or some of you moms, that first moment you took that pregnancy test, and you're like, oh boy, I better tell my husband. And then you're like, who are we going to tell now? Don't tell the in-laws, right? I don't know who, you just, you're kind of a little selective, but then you can't wait to tell everyone. Some of you guys on social media, you're like, can't wait to change my status from single to in a relationship, right? You just couldn't wait for that moment to, to tell everyone, to give the good news. Well, Jesus takes Mary's despair as she's coming. What happened to, I want to tell everyone what happened. And that's what happens when we have Christ change our life. We can't help but just to have it be an overflow as we share the good news. So she goes and tells the disciples. Now, let's see how the disciples are doing. Here's our third idea today. I told you there's four. The third idea is dread. 
So this does not look good. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, so Easter evening, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Uh, Now notice what's happening with me. It's Easter evening. The disciples know that they're next, right? They were cohorts with Jesus, so they know they're next. And so they're hiding out in a house with the doors locked. I just, when I read that, I thought that was kind of cute. The doors are locked. I mean, if a mob is trying to kill you, they're not gonna worry about a door lock, right? They're not, that's like when we were kids, we were scared of the boogeyman, we were scared of bad guys. So what do we do? We hide under our sheet, because that'll show them. <laughs> we just hide under my sheet. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. But see, these locked doors don't shut Jesus out. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You guys follow me? Jesus pronounces shalom to the fearful, fretful followers. Shalom, peace, is not how we define it. We define peace like the absence of conflict. And so the world says, hey, we're going to give a peace treaty. That means no more conflict. But see, true shalom is a wholeness of life even in the midst of conflict. Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. I give you my shalom, meaning in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of chaos, and a bad diagnosis, and fear, and and all of the things that overwhelm you, you can experience true shalom. You see, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, has come to our locked doors of fear, and he has broken the curse of sin, and he has restored true shalom. The Bible says, Paul says to the Romans in Romans 5, that we've been justified by faith, and now we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in Philippians that we can have the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. But you can't have the peace of God until you have first made peace with God. And we only have peace with God through the finished work of Jesus. So we can experience his peace this morning. I think many of us are living lives filled with dread, filled with fear. In a church this size, in a congregation this size, and I don't know all of your situations, but no doubt, I mean, it wouldn't be hard for us to realize that in a group this size, there are definitely some of you who are afraid of failure. You're afraid of death itself. Some of you are afraid of a diagnosis. You're just afraid to go to the doctor because you're afraid he's going to say, yeah, it's terminal. Some of you have that diagnosis, and you're afraid of what's next. Some of you are afraid of losing a loved one or being abandoned by your family. Some of you have a fear that you're going to sabotage your life and you've been clean for a while, but it's just going to take one more mistake and I could be dead uh, if I make one more mistake. Some of us are afraid not of failure, but of success. We're afraid of, I got to do all this again to keep attaining this and, and I'm just tired of the daily grind. Some of us are afraid of the unknown and these fears can keep us locked up and in bondage. But the Lord comes and he says to us, Shalom, I've come to give you peace with God so that you can experience the peace of God. Now, I love that out of all the disciples or all the people in the world in that moment that Jesus could have shown up and appeared to. I love that out of all the people, he shows up to the 10 disciples and to Mary Magdalene. If it were me and if it were you, honest moment, 
If, if you and I had been risen from the dead, you and I, here's what I would do. I would show up at Pilate's house that night. And there's Pilate, and he's washing his hands for dinner, and I'd be like, you washed your hands of me, did you? <laughs> That's what I would do. I'd show up at Annas and Caiaphas' house. Remember the religious leaders that put him to death? And I'd be like, and then they open the door and I'd say, I'm back. I mean, that's what I would do. I would parade through the streets of Jerusalem. I'm risen, right? Very obnoxiously, and so would you. But see, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus rises and he reveals himself to his most intimate followers. But one's missing. There's someone missing. His name is found in verse 24. Call it out. Who's in verse 24? You guys missed it. What is it? Verse 24? Thomas. Thomas. Now, Thomas has an adjective in front of his name. Uh, how is he known? He's known as blank Thomas. What is the word? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. All right, poor guy. Poor. We're going to get to heaven, and we're going to be like, hey, Peter, where's, where's Thomas? He's going to be like, who? We're going to be like, you know, Doubting Thomas. He's going to be oh, he's over there. He's got a line of people that want to talk to him. <laughs> he's never going to live that name down. Thankfully, you and I are not known as Doubting Bob, right? That would just be the worst, right? Here's Doubting Susan. Sorry to, sorry to introduce you. And so Thomas is not there. Look at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Same message that Mary had. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is our fourth idea this morning, and that's doubt, doubt. Thomas refused to believe until he sees the nail prints and the scourged scars where the nails had been imprinted into Jesus' body. And many people would have the same attitude today. Uh, yeah, unless I see the Lord, I'm not gonna believe. Some people have even said, you know, if God would just come down right now and show himself, then I would believe. And I would say, no, you wouldn't, because he did, and we crucified him. You see, many of us have this idea that I just need to see a sign, and then I'll believe. But Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. No, all of creation declares the glory of God. All of creation, day after day, night after night, pours forth the speech that says he exists He's alive, and we must submit to him. Even our conscience, the law of God is written upon our conscience so that when we sin, when we violate God's law, when we lie, we blush. You see, it's written in all of creation. It's written on our conscience. It's not evidence that you're lacking this morning if you don't believe. It's not. It's not evidence that you're lacking. It's not that you can't believe. It's that you won't believe. You refuse to believe in God because if you do admit that he exists, then you have to submit to him. I wonder if many of us, and I know I did for years and years, I was born in a Christian home and I rebelled against it. Not because my parents were hypocrites and I didn't like it. I rebelled against it because I said, there's gotta be something else out there. Certainly, surely there's something else that will provide meaning to my existential crisis I'm having. And so I began to look, but I had the same mindset that many of us have. It's the Carrie Fisher uh, theology. Carrie Fisher, the late Carrie Fisher played Princess Leia. Here's what she said about her ideas. She said, I love the idea of God, but it's not stylistically in keeping with the way I function, huh? I would describe myself as an enthusiastic agnostic who would be happy to be shown that there is a God. I would say, no, you wouldn't, because if you come to discover the truth that he does exist, that he's revealed himself in the personal work of Christ, well, then now you're accountable to him, and now you must listen and submit 
and no longer dismiss the claims of Christ and reject them. See, the resurrection demands a response. Your indifference to the finished work of Christ is a response. That is a rejection, but it demands a response. You can no longer, after hearing this today, uh, plead ignorance before the throne of God. I didn't know, I had no idea. No, God loves you enough that he puts you in a church service on Easter Sunday, 2019, to hear the gospel of God presented to you. There is no more excuse for you, young man, older man, younger woman, uh, older woman. There is no more excuse. This, this morning, it, your heart, your soul is laid bare before him, and it demands, the resurrection demands a response from you. For Thomas, it's, you know, I'm not going to believe unless I see it with my own eyes. So what happened? What happened? Well, look at verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them, didn't stop them, and he said, peace be with you, shalom. And then he said to Thomas, I love the intention here, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Notice with me, Jesus is inviting your doubt. He's inviting your skepticism. He's inviting your disbelief. Come on, bring it. Come, let's, let's talk, let's converse. Bring that here. And then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, over a week later, after Jesus rose, Thomas's attitude was transformed from doubt to faith when he saw Jesus. And listen, this morning, Jesus is saying the same thing to you. He's saying, don't disbelieve anymore, but believe. And notice that Thomas here in verse 28 calls him my Lord and my God. There's a personal reality here, but he says, you're the Lord, you're God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Son of God. And we know this by faith because it's confirmed by his resurrection from the dead. Paul opened his letter to the Romans this way on the screen. He said, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, that's a picture of the Old Testament, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. He's Jesus Christ. He's our Lord. You see, Thomas no longer doubted when he saw the risen Savior. The resurrection confirms the claims of Christ. And today, there remains an empty tomb. Produce a body, Jews, uh, Pharisees, uh, Romans, produce the body, and we will no longer believe. But there is no uh, dead body. Jesus has conquered sin and death, and he's risen victoriously. And so this morning, you may find yourself in one or more of these conditions. You may have been living your life recently gripped with fear, or you've been questioning the existence of God. Maybe life lately for you has been chaotic and desperate and sorrowful. Certainly some of us here, even recently, have faced the reality of death as the, the finality of the grave kind of sobers us up to the existence of the afterlife. But listen, the resurrection changes everything. Clarence W. Hall said it this way, the resurrection of Jesus changes the face of death for all his people. Death is no longer a prison, but a passage into God's presence. Easter says you can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. Amen? Isn't that awesome? Certainly in an audience this size, there are some who have never received Jesus as Lord and Savior. And in our early service, 
we gave an opportunity to respond, and we're gonna give you an opportunity to respond in just a moment. And in the early service, an older woman and a younger teenage boy both received Christ as their savior. It was a wonderful time, it was awesome. You clap for that, yeah. Permit me for a minute to give you some great news, but before I give you the great news, the bad news, the awful news, the horrendous news. The Bible explains that the wrath of God remains upon you. And I don't say that to be a jerk. I'm not trying to, to be rude to you, but I really don't care if you're offended by that because the Bible says it. You have violated the command of God. You are a rebel. You're a traitor. You are by nature a child of wrath. And I don't want you to stay that way. It's only in love that I say that to you because I want you to be a child of God, a child of his favor. You violated the law of God and you cannot plead for mercy after it's too late. You cannot save yourself. The empty tomb today demands a response, and it's either going to be utter rejection through literal rejection or indifference or reception. I want to receive and throw myself fully and wholly upon Jesus and trust in his finished work, not self-righteous religion. That's not what we're talking about, where we all do the right thing, say the right thing, have straight white teeth. No, that's not the idea. The idea is I'm, I'm a wretch, and he saved me and he's good, and I'm not good, but because of what he accomplished for me, I am now the pardoned and the penitent who goes free. So as we close this morning, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond, and I'm gonna invite our worship team forward. We're gonna close in a, in a victorious anthem, and I want you to go ahead and close your Bibles and get settled. Please don't move around during this time. Our worship team's gonna come forward, but I'd like you to just stay in a, in a general kind of posture of, of stillness, and I just wanna speak to you for a minute. There was a British minister named W.E. Sankster, and in the 1950s, he began to deteriorate physically. And uh, as he began to grow older, this happens, he began to lose his voice and he lost his mobility. He had a, a degenerative muscular atrophy disease. Well, he started recognizing the end was near, and so he prayed this prayer one day, and he said this. He said, Lord, let me stay in the struggle. I don't mind if I can't be a general anymore, but at least give me a small regiment to lead. Well, eventually his voice failed completely, and then his legs became useless. And on Easter morning, just a few days before he died, Sankster took a pen and began to shakily write his daughter a letter. And in the letter he said this, it's terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout he's risen, but it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. See, this morning, you have one of the most amazing opportunities to come to saving faith on the day that Jesus conquered sin and death. What an amazing opportunity you have this morning. God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son to take your place at Calvary. Sin is real. Sin was so important, so heavy. We don't just deal with it trifly, that God allowed his son to be crushed. Under the weight of his wrath, Jesus took your place. But see, Jesus conquered death and rose again so that you and I might also be risen from death to experience new life. The resurrection turns our doubt into faith. It turns our despair into hope. It turns our dread, it turns our fear into absolute peace and it turns death into new life.
Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.